Today is June 10th, 2014, and this is episode 117. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new field of study. Consult your local futurist, lawyer, and investment advisor before making any decisions whatsoever for yourself. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today we're going to talk about predicting the future. Paul Stortz isn't the first to theorize on prediction markets, but his approach is definitely novel. We talk privileged knowledge, bad actors, and how to fund a lighthouse by betting against its creation. Then, Lamar and Leif from FIVA Wallet check in about their project's progress, key management, and FIVA Plus. I wanted to mention that, as many of you have noticed, Let's Talk Bitcoin is spending much of its time talking about projects outside of Bitcoin. As today's TruthCoin interview, I think, nicely demonstrates, this is because after a year of talking about Bitcoin, the most interesting initiatives are being tested as alts or user-created assets now because Bitcoin's getting big. We do have upcoming episodes on items like colored coins and, of course, merchant interviews, but as Bitcoin becomes more mainstream, the interviews become less interesting to me personally, and so I tend to follow the innovation as best I can see it. I'm not always right, and I hope you don't think I claim to be the authority. I'm just a schlub with a microphone who decided this was the best way to spend his time and then turn it into a platform for others to use. Let's Talk Bitcoin is my exploration into the cryptocurrency world, specifically the parts that I find most interesting. As we say, the ideas, the people, and the projects. As always, feedback, suggestions, and comments are welcome at adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. And if you're interested in starting or participating in a new show, the LTB Network would love to help you get started. It's enough out of me. Enjoy the show. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Paul Stortz. Paul, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. You and I have been having kind of a off and on conversation about something called prediction markets. And this is a follow up on a project that you've been putting together. I don't even know what stage you're at with it right now called TruthCoin. So can you give us kind of a really brief 90 second overview of what the TruthCoin project is? TruthCoin is a trustless and decentralized prediction marketplace. So it's supposed to be very similar to Bitcoin and its overall philosophy of not trusting anyone which unfortunately is required in the sort of distributed asset ledger environment where you, you know, you need the, the, the ledger to show who owns what. And so as prediction markets, you have to store up some money and then release it depending on what happens. So it's an opportunity to sort of follow the Bitcoin model. Where we are right now is that I'd like to see a lot of attention from people who can code. I mean, I wrote a white paper, which is pretty detailed and I'm writing, I'm in the process of working with a few developers to really flesh out in great detail exactly what the transactions are so that someone can make this. I don't think it would be difficult to make, but it's not, it doesn't exist in a usable form yet. And it, you know, there's a GitHub, but I only coded proof of concept version of what the newest parts are. So I didn't do any of the blockchain parts. I'm absolutely certain that someone else is going to be much better at that. That's the state of the project. So it sounds like you've written this white paper and you've been talking to people right. and you've done some proof of concept implementations of some specific parts of it. You know, of all the different types of technologies that are out there that someone who's intelligent and looking to, you know, develop in this type of space can do, why are prediction markets one of the areas or the area that you've picked as the greatest opportunity for your work personally? Okay, well, it's true that I believe that this 
this project is the single most valuable use of my time and I think a lot of other people's time. And, and what I should say first is that I wrote a whole document about this that I put on our forum website, which is forum.truthcoin.info, and you can find it. It's, it's in the general section under why do this, and I, I wrote a big kind of manifesto about why this is important, and there are a lot of reasons for this. There are a lot of applications, but just to put it in a really general picture is that you know information really has the ability to help people improve their lives a lot, uh, and, and it's a great thing when people you know they they know things and they have reliable information that they can trust, and there's really nothing better than that. And in our modern world with the internet, you know, it connects a lot of people to each other, and you can hear a lot of different points of view, but it's very difficult to aggregate all those points of view into one usable idea that you know is reliable you know it doesn't help if there's a lot of people saying this and a lot of people saying that and you don't know which which people are more trustworthy without doing a lot of effort on your own part and these markets have much more potential than what you may have seen on intrade or what you may be seeing you know on prediction market websites today they can do much more than just say will a certain candidate be elected will you know a certain team win a sports match. They can say which CEO would raise the stock price the most. They can say which political candidate would keep us out of war or put us in war or increase GDP or which you know Fed policy would create the appropriate amount of inflation, whatever you think that is, or in unemployment or something. So they have a lot of a lot of potential to really make it accessible to just a layperson. You just look up on the internet and see the prices and then you know what the what the state of reliable information is. So in the information age, I think this is this is gonna be a big thing, maybe the big thing. I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say, but I think this is a really important institution. So let's talk about some of those examples. And I'm aware that those might be a little bit more complex, but I actually do want to I want to yeah, try to understand um, how something like this works, because the, the way that it would work in my head, based on what you're telling me, is something along the lines of you're basically incentivizing anybody who has real information to act in their own financial best interest and make a bet based on private information that they know. And then because they've made that bet, that's a public bet that then other people can see. They can't see who made the bet, but they can see that there's a lot of value that believes this certain way. And therefore, the market uh, should, over time, align itself better. Like People who, who have inside information should be more inclined to bet, therefore the odds should go in favor of the, of the outcome that's most informed, which informs the rest of the market. Is that the basic logic? That's the basic logic. So maybe I can give another example. If you if there's a prediction market saying Barack Obama will be elected in 2012 or 2008 or whatever you want, uh, there's a market for that that says there's like a 99% chance that he'll be elected. And then there's another market that says Barack Obama will be elected and the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay will be closed. And and that market is at you know five percent or three percent or something like that. Hmm. So you know that Barack Obama is being elected. Maybe it already happened, but you know that Guantanamo Bay probably won't be closed. And if someone did know that, the question is, why aren't you betting and taking advantage of this of this free money? And the real benefit is that you can start these markets long before Barack Obama starts campaigning or as soon as he starts campaigning. So you would know immediately. It's sort of the joint probability is the is the probability of two things happening at once, and then you'd know what's the probability of Barack Obama being elected. Maybe it's sixty or eighty or something. But 
if he's elected, what's the probability of Guantanamo Bay being closed? It could be very low. And then when Barack Obama says, I'm going to close the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay, you would know that he's lying. So really, so it sounds like you need to have a lot of options here for this to really like to like the, it's only as good as the amount of bets you have, not not the actual value of That's bets true. you have, but like the amount of options of bets you have. So people can pick the best option based on their inside knowledge. That's correct. And there are some techniques for making it. Uh, you can modularize the bet. So you don't need someone to take if you want to make a really complicated bet that, um, for example, someone X candidate will win and the Dow Jones Industrial Average will be above Y and the weather on a certain day will be cloudy. If you want to do all of these things, you don't need to find one person. Thanks to something called market scoring rules, which I implemented in the design of this project, you don't need to find someone who's going to take the exact opposite position from you on that. It can be modularized and broken up. And so it's, it's a huge benefits. Market scoring technology, you know, was invented a long time ago and it was not used. It's never been used by anyone in trade or any of these websites. And it's, it's a real shame because this is, this is the true value as, you know, there's a blog post by Hal Finney at uh, Overcoming Bias. He has an example where there's a politician being elected I think actually the example is if the Democrats take uh, the Senate, where will national debt be and when will you know a war end or defense spending? And so there's all this potential that's being totally overlooked. Uh, it's more than just it's more than just gambling uh, and on, on on politicians and stuff. It's a really really big deal, and there's a lot of potential here. Where does ideology come into play on something like this, though? Because I mean, like I've seen centralized prediction markets before, like in trade. You mentioned, you know, and in trade didn't do that great a job of tracking what actually happened in reality. Uh, this is because it was a it was a relatively small market, and so in order to get the types of benefits you're talking about, this really has to be something that people within the ecosystem know about pervasively and you know, know that it's in their best interest to participate when they have this information. So do you, I mean, like, is there a chicken egg here where these aren't as useful until they get really big and they can't get really big until they're useful? There is. You're absolutely right. It's very difficult to build a, a ramp, but I have a kind of a plan for that. And that is that, first of all, there are some people who, who really love the political markets and maybe the sports markets. So they will, you can kind of get those, some of those people in to sort of get this started a little bit. But you, what you can also do is you can also have a, a market that involves arbitrage. So you can say, what will the Dow Jones Industrial Average be on a certain date? And then if the market's not really tracking the day's price, it's sort of like you're leaving money on the table. So you can kind of get some people in to take this free money as the actual market price changes from the prediction market price. But you're right, this is a challenge that this is a chicken and egg problem, as you say, where you know, and until they're big, uh, they don't have a lot of the attention and a lot of the sort of financial influence that they might otherwise have. But one thing the market scoring rules do is that they make it so that someone can always make a trade. So the market can't stall out from a, a lack of volume. You can always trade, even if you're the only one in the market, there's a tiny little bit of money there. And there's this cool math trick that lets you trade kind of against that and against yourself if you change your mind. But even the, the liquidity can never fall to zero in the markets that I've designed, even if there's no one on the other side of your trade, there's still a little bit of a little tiny pot of money that you're you're fighting over, mm. and so I think this is going to help. I also think that Intrade had a lot of problems. It was very unclear whether or not you could get your money out of Intrade. Intrade did eventually close and and have customers' funds locked up for a really long time, and some people didn't get their money back at all. 
in trade did not allow you to, for example, bet on a very long-term contract. So they had contracts that were like, will extraterrestrial life be found in 2020 or something? And you couldn't bet on this in a way that would match the return of the stock market. So you see, you have to be compensated for losing access to your cash for for like 10 years. Right. So they, they, there's a lot of things they didn't do. They didn't do the multidimensional markets that I was talking about. If Hillary Clinton is elected, will we be at war with France or whatever? And they also yeah, they were a real company too, you know, and I mean, it seemed like that was the thing that eventually caught up with them. Right. And they were, of course, they were, they were closed down. So that was a very sad day. Even though they weren't very good, they were the best. It was sad to see them go. And that was, that was actually really, you know, that was, that was not great, even though it was foreseeable because similar things that happened in the past to the, the policy analysis market and where people just didn't like it. It's very taboo. You know, you're, you've got money and gambling and politics. So they'd run afoul of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Well, we can't play politics with money, it, right? Right. It's, so it's like one taboo too many and, uh, and it's too useful, you know, <laughs> because people were saying that, oh, you know, Barack Obama was in the lead. I think he was never below 60%. I think he was never below 64% for being elected in 2012. So, you know, I think it's some people thought that it influenced voter turnout and that it wasn't in the public interest and all this other stuff, which is debatable. Well, suddenly. one question I do have about it is that, you know, I can understand this. This tool makes a ton of sense to me in a Bitcoin paradigm world, you know, in like a cryptocurrency paradigm world where everything is flat, basically. But we have a lot of legal structures on a variety of books that. This kind of sounds like insider trading or some type of, I mean, again, like it's sort of illegal to trade on knowledge that you have. Uh, and so, again, like is the argument here that it's totally pseudonymous, so it's impossible to tell who is doing this. Therefore, you can't stop people from acting in their best interest. Or are you thinking, again, this is more like a Bitcoin type future where these structures maybe aren't so much there? You know, I'm hoping that, I mean, you know, what's legal isn't always the right thing to do. And, you know, slavery was once legal and there were a lot of, there were a lot of bad laws and there was a lot of misunderstanding. Even the stock market and life insurance, those were illegal. You know, people thought it was betting on people's death and they were, you know, they were horrified by it. And eventually there were these exceptions made. So I think it's just about raising consciousness, uh, you mentioned insider trading. Uh, I don't think it's possible to prevent insider trading no matter what, even if you wanted to. And even if you could, I don't even think that you would want to. So it's just my opinion that people, you know, markets aggregate information and you want them to do that because you don't want, what if someone knew, like a factory burns down and someone knows that the stock price of a company is going down and they are the only one who knows. So it's insider information. They're the only one at the factory, you know, in Idaho or some, somewhere where there's no one else. And then meanwhile, someone, you know, with a pension fund or something is buying the stock the next day. They're going to get it ripped off. They're going to get a higher price than they would have got if this guy hadn't contributed his information as soon as possible. But, you know, it's a big, it's a big debate. And I think it's just about raising consciousness and raising awareness of the benefits of these markets, which are very high because they enable people to understand the world that they live in. And you don't have to, you know, trust someone when they say, I'm going to close Guantanamo Bay. You know, you, you can see whether or not they will. And, and that's worth a lot to me. Let's talk about the blockchain type of construct that you've uh, hypothesized here. Because uh, this is a project that would be built on its own blockchain. And it would, I assume it, this would be a mined blockchain. And uh, can, can you tell me a little bit about the technical backend you envisioned for this and why it was something uh, that you didn't feel like would be a good fit on Bitcoin itself or, you know, just using Bitcoin? 
What's funny you mentioned that I, I wanted it to be on Bitcoin, but uh, some people advised me that it would actually be too difficult. And so I kind of designed it even before the term sidechain was invented. I kind of designed it as a sidechain where I just said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to specify all the rules for moving the Bitcoin around. And then I'll let someone else figure out how, how it actually gets moved around according to these rules. So in that way, it's kind of tailor-made almost for like Ethereum or something where I just kind of wrote down the rules in a very right. black and white kind of just follow this recipe way. So I did design it for Bitcoin first, uh, and I, w- I still think that would be great. If someone could invent sidechains you know, really soon, that would be ideal, but I don't think that's going to happen for a while. So someone advised me to just, okay, just make it on its own chain, and we can test it out and see kind of what happens. And then maybe we can kind of take it from there, where you just keep it on the chain, or move it back, or do something, do a third thing, or move it to Ethereum, or do whatever, you know, so just kind of get it started, though. So I thought that was a great suggestion. So... To explain the blockchain is that since now it's going to be on its own blockchain, there are now two layers. So there's like a currency coin, and then there are sort of what I'm calling now vote coins. So there's like these coins that represent kind of a proportional ownership of the voting mechanism. I'm going to explain this in like three phases, how this works. Because the trick is to get, only assuming that people are selfish, the trick is to figure out whether or not you know Hillary Clinton was elected in, in 2016, despite the fact that many people are going to have a strong incentive to lie about that if they're holding losing shares or if they just... You know, they just hate everything. So, so that's, that's a big challenge. And I don't agree with some of the methods that have been proposed for this. I don't think they'll work at all. So I did something that was a little bit more involved. So I'm going to have to explain it in three parts. Luckily, one and three are very simple. So one and three, I just break up responsibility proportionally to this coin. So if you own 40% of the vote coins, you own like 40% of the, the income, you know, the transaction fees, and you own 40%, you have a 40% influence in the, the vote. So the goal is to kind of split this up so that it's very, very, very low trust, no single person. But it doesn't necessarily fail if one person has a very large percentage. So what does that percentage allow you to do? Is this the ability that you have to influence the outcome? Because the other thing that we haven't talked about right. is data feeds. That's where this is going. Okay, great. So these people are going to provide the data. See, it, unfortunately, it's, be, it's become clear to me and other people. For something like Prediction Market, you can't say query Google or something. And you really, it really has to come from a, a human labor. It has to kind of read what's going on in supply. So that's a really unfortunate. But if we just deal with it, we can do the best if we can with that design constraint. And so what I'm doing with the vote coins is breaking up responsibility among multiple people who are going to all cross-validate each other at some point. But again, in three phases. So phase one is you people own small percentages of this kind of fictitious company, this corporation. And they're going to vote on all the events, not just one, but all the events taking place on a certain time period. So they, if Hillary Clinton is being elected in November of 2016, they're going to vote on that in December, but they're also going to vote on, you know, how many Senate seats were won by American Democrats and, you know, whether or not the Dow Jones Industrial Average was above this or what value it was or whether or not something happened in November. So all the November stuff is going to be voted on in December, just to take an example of one month, which I think is probably what's going to happen. You've got these months, and you're going to vote on all the things that happened in, in the month, and that's going to be what I call a ballot of votes. You're going to get them all together, and that's simple. So that's part one, which I don't think is 
controversial. Then there's part three. I'm going to skip part two. Part three is simple. You aggregate the votes in some way. So for a, a number like what was the Dow Jones Industrial Average, I take the weighted median. So there are a lot of technical details that maybe I'll just blur over. But but yeah, for mostly it's like a weighted median or there's a weighted average for true-false. You just say, you know, one, 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 zero, 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 and you you weighted average them and you see where are you? Are you are you closer to one or zero or are you somewhere in between? So again, I hope part three, that's pretty simple that you can just take an average or you can take a median. But then this, this part two is the, the kind of complicated part. It's a matrix factorization because I have a matrix here where everyone's votes are the rows and all the things they voted on are the columns. And I have a matrix of their responses and I do something called singular value decomposition on this matrix. And it's a little complicated, but the point of this is that it gives you a continuous measure of conformity because what it does is there's a column of one of the outputs of this process that shows you to what extent each voter, each person voting on the outcomes, varied all of their votes across the whole ballot. To what extent they varied their votes with a voter who is maximally representative of the entire matrix. So you get a measure of conformity, and it's, it's continuous. So even if this was all true, false, true, false, true, false, you would know one guy, because he voted false on the one that everyone voted true on or because he voted false on the one that people were sort of split on. You know, there was 60-40 split on or they were kind of confused about. I don't expect any of this to happen. I don't expect anyone to be confused. My expectation is that everyone will actually vote the exact same way, but it's the game theory requires us to consider all of the off-path things that might happen. And so what this does is it, it lets you consider every way someone could submit a, a different ballot and you want to know who made the, you know, who was the weirdest guy and then who was the second weirdest guy and then who were the most conformist people. And, and I'm going to use that measure in a second part. So part two only has two parts. I realize I already made it three parts, but part two itself has two parts. So this is the last part. So hopefully it's not getting too complicated. And the last part is that now that you've got a measure of conformity, I'm going to punish people. You have something called a coordination game where any ballot would win the game as long as everyone else was playing it. Because you can see, you don't want to be the guy who's sort of away from the herd. You want to be very close to what other people have done. And so you've got to pick one that is going to be the same as everyone else's. And not just the same as everyone else's most of the time. You've got to really kind of very carefully consider what other people are going to do so that you can vote that way. And since I encrypt the ballots, to just gloss over another detail, I have details about how they're encrypted and they contain a new public key. But again, there's a lot of details that I just have to blur over just to get through the explanation. And you want to coordinate with everyone else. And the ballots are very big. You know, if there's 100 true-false possibilities, that's two to the 100. And you really need to get the same one as everyone else. So when you consider the fact that you want to get the same as everyone else, and you consider the fact that these vote coins will be worth the most when the network performs optimally, then you have, because these vote coins collect fees, they collect a little bit of fees, that's the standard kind of thing that everyone is doing, which is good. Then what you have is a situation where everyone wants to vote the way that actually happened because you need a way to coordinate and you don't want the network to fail completely. So as soon as you get just a few people on some easy ones with Hillary Clinton winning and then it sort of becomes unclear where exactly do the hard ones begin, although I hope that it'll be easy. 
you have this big system where everyone wants to vote the way other people voted, and no one wants to crash the network. So and it's sort of like a fifty-one percent attack because to vote against the network or to vote against what actually happened before everyone else in the network also is voting against what actually happened. Uh, it's a economically bad decision, basically, compared to just voting what actually happened, which pretty much everybody else will be too, since that's what's actually happened. Right. So okay, it's yeah. very similar to the fifty-one percent. It's very similar to the fifty-one percent in spirit, but actually, it's the case that if people are voting completely at random, even if ninety or ninety-five, this is a function of a couple of different things, but even if a huge percentage of people vote away from the truth, but they do so in a way that's very random, as long as there's like a, a coordinated right. group of 5% that are voting exactly the same, those people are going to win through singular value decomposition, and everyone else will be punished to the extent that they... So if you really think that there's going to be a good block of coordinated people, you you have to join that that group. And so it's... so it's uh, I, I put a lot of thought into it, and I think this is a pretty clever way of having the distributed thing figure out what actually happens so that you know whose shares are worth money and whose shares are not, because that's a requirement for a prediction market. CryptoKit is the world's first Chrome browser Bitcoin wallet. It's the easiest, fastest Bitcoin wallet payment system. With a simple one-click install, it takes just seconds to get your wallet set up. And because CryptoKit finds the address and payment for you, there's no more fussing around or tab switching. CryptoKit is more than just a wallet. It comes with a preloaded PGP-encrypted social network, news feeds from Reddit and Google, and up-to-date charts from exchanges. Finally, CryptoKit directory allows you to make two-click payments with any of the BitPay merchants. Once you install CryptoKit, you won't need anything else. For more information or to download CryptoKit, visit CryptoKit.com. Hi, Stephanie here. Would you like to turn your book into an enthralling audiobook? Need a persuasive commercial to promote your company? How about a narrator for your explainer video? Here's where I can help. I'm a freelance voiceover artist, and since 2009, I've lent my voice to dozens of audio projects. To hear some examples of my work, check out my website, smvoice.info. If you like what you hear, I'd love to be the voice of your next project. Get in touch at smvoice.info. So there's a way of actually funding public goods in a, in a trustless way without taxes. Uh, it's very cool. It's uh, So... Satoshi actually built into Bitcoin support for something called an assurance contract, which is a very cool economic invention, which is sort of like Kickstarter, where people pledge money. Someone says they want to build a lighthouse. A lighthouse is a public good because once you've built it, you can't stop people from using it. You can't like only show the light to a few people, to a few ships. That's impossible. So with a the lighthouse, so, there's a free rider problem in exactly. the <laughs> And so, right, exactly. There's a free rider problem. And so historically, they've taxed the surrounding city for the funds to build a lighthouse with the logic being that the city would enjoy the benefits when the ships could safely dock there and trade and do these other things. So that's great. But can we do even better? And the answer is yes. So with the assurance contract, you say, like, oh, I need a million dollars to build my lighthouse. And people pledge. And if they don't pledge, if the whole million dollars isn't pledge, then it goes back to the people. So you don't have to spend money, you just have to tie it up. 
And so people will say, oh, um, I'd like a lighthouse. That's great. And Satoshi built this into Bitcoin with the anyone can pay. I think I'm not entirely sure, but I think it's this anyone can pay kind of feature or something. And the problem with the assurance contract, though, is that your money is tied up. And, and some people will go and they'll say, oh, why should I bother? Because it won't raise the one million, they think. you know. So there's like a doubt problem, like a cascading doubt issue. And another thing is that the, uh, the, the person building the lighthouse kind of has to wear two hats at once. They have to be great at building lighthouses and they also have to like, do the market research required to see if these people are going to raise the money or something. So there's a dominance assurance contract, which is another cool piece of technology, which I think Mike Hearn or someone on the Bitcoin Wikipedia wrote a way of doing this, where there's an entrepreneur who does market research on the, the viability of the lighthouse. And he says, oh, I think a lighthouse would be great here. And I think people would pay a million dollars for it. So he puts up some of his own money. This is kind of neat. He puts up maybe, I don't know, $20,000 or something. And he goes out to everyone and says, hey, pledge. We need, a, we need like $1.1 million because he's giving himself a little bit of money. We need $1.1 million to build this lighthouse. And you should pledge it. And if we don't raise the million, not only do you get your money back, but you get some of my money, some of this $20,000 or $30,000 that he put aside. So, so people now have an incentive. to, If they really want the lighthouse, they have an incentive to pledge because they've got something in it for them. The money's not tied up for no reason. You could potentially get some more money back or you get the lighthouse. So you, you're kind of happy either way. And it sort of just modularizes this more. There's like a new entrepreneur who's kind of greasing the wheels and making this happen. And that's very cool. Uh, but the problem with that is that in Bitcoin world, there's no way of proving that anyone will do this or will do that with their money. So what you do is instead you make a prediction market that has, instead of yes, no, three states and, and say state one is that nothing will, be, nothing will happen. And state two is that a lighthouse will be built that's, you know, like 100 feet tall and conforms to Coast Guard standards for lighthouses and et cetera and is this close to a certain city or something. And then you say that's state two. And then state three is the exact same thing. There's a lighthouse that's going to be built. And the only difference between states two and three is that you're going to paint like a letter on the lighthouse. And if it's state two, it's going to be letter A. And if it's state three, it's going to be letter B. And so they're very, very, very simple. simple. And the lighthouse builder can sort of change his mind last minute. So only he kind of knows. That's where this is going. Only he kind of knows whether or not it will be state two or state three if it's built. But if it's state one, it won't be built. And so the analog is that you build a prediction market where you can't sell and you can only collect money. And then you can only redeem if you, if you win the prediction market or not. I have a question about malicious actors here, because again, sure. it seems like, uh, yeah, you're setting up an incentive structure where that's the case, but if they're on one side of the bet, then what's to stop somebody from taking that other side of the bet and then acting in real life, just as that guy's acting in real life to evangelize the cause, what's to stop someone who bets against it from, you know, evangelizing in the opposite direction and trying to stop it from being built? Well, they can, and that's obviously not desirable, but it's actually the case that you would actually be betting on state one that it wouldn't be built because you're tying your money up on purpose. And if it's exactly the same as the dominant assurance contract where if the lighthouse doesn't get built, then you end up being right. And then you end up getting more money back. And so because you've bought this state, there's three states. So you bought one and the price, of course, of these three states must add up to one. 
So you're buying state one for less than one, but when you redeem it at the end, it'll be worth one. So you're actually getting this return. So all the people who want the lighthouse would be betting that it wouldn't be built. But you're right, there may be some people who just genuinely believe that there's not a chance of this lighthouse being built, and then they might be surprised that it's suddenly being built, and then they might decide to go to town hall or something and try and protest. But that's kind of true of everything, don't you think? Sure. I mean, it's true of everything. Like, you know, some, some people have a problem with this or a problem with that. Well, let me give you another example. It's, um, sure. So in these anonymous markets, like you talked about assurance contracts, which are like crowdfunding or Kickstarter sorts of things. What's to stop right. somebody from starting a campaign and then betting against themselves so that when they fail, they get money? <laughs> I mean, like, what's, you know, and I guess the, the, I know the answer. The answer is there's nothing to stop them. So I guess the better question is, is that important? Right. Does that matter? And is the benefit that we're getting from this such that it makes it so that's okay? It's important because I don't think I'm explaining it well enough <laughs> for you to get. Okay. You want to bet against it. If you want to donate to this cause and make it more likely to happen, you're actually going to bet against it so that the money is tied up in this market. Uh, someone could. So you're also making bet this bet it. with the intention of losing. Yeah. Right, exactly. Okay, because it's a different way of lose, oh, interesting. So, okay, but, but yeah, there's nothing right, stopping exactly. anybody from hedging the other way, too. That's just betting against themselves succeeding. That's exactly what the entrepreneur is going to do. The entrepreneur who, remember, he's going to put up twenty or $30,000 right. and say, hey, if, if you pledge and you don't get any money back, I'm going to give you some of my money because I believe in this cause so much and I want and that to make person it worth is also, to tie up this money. That person has put up that $20,000. That's not the only money that they've put into this project in theory. The other money would be money that they've put into actually getting it built or whatever because they want to see it built. And so this is the, and this is like just the incentive that gets it so that other people care a lot. Right. They may, at, particularly at the end, like I was saying, you need 1.1 million now. They might decide if it gets like one, you know, 1.09 or something, they might decide, oh, you know, I really don't want to lose that 30,000, 20,000 that I put up. You know, I'm just going to finish the market myself or get a loan right. or something. So that, that, they could certainly wear different hats. But the entrepreneur is going to buy both states two and three which again is going to be less than one. And as long as they are right, as long as someone builds the lighthouse, even if it's not them and puts an A or B in it, as long as someone does that, they're going to get one back from one of those states. So as long as they can buy equally, they could equally have states two and three. So whatever that is, it's going to, the total of that is not going to cost more than one, but they'll get one back because one of those shares will be worth money if the lighthouse is built. So it's, so it's very ideal. It's a perfect fit. The only last piece is the lighthouse builder has to look at this market and there's a simple math formula that that I'm probably going to automate so that other people don't have to do it and they will uh, they can look at it and say how much money is here and how much money could I make if I built the lighthouse and then I only I know whether or not it's going to contain an A or a B and then you make a huge trade at the end. You bet it all on B or something. And as long as that trade goes through, no problem. You just paint a B on right at the last minute. And then you hold a press conference and you talk about how, how great this lighthouse is and how it's 100 feet tall and how it has a letter B and all those other things. <laughs> so, right. So that's the, and then the market is over. So, yeah, you're making bets, planning to lose. It's a donation, but it's a really clever donation. It's conditional on the lighthouse right. being built. So that's, so that's kind of neat. So that's kind of a cool little idea. So, in order to validate predictions, you're basically asking people who will hold the coin to, to make a judgment, right? Um, Correct. But if you're successful with this, aren't you going to have just like a ridiculous 
flow through rate of of uh, these predictions that need to be validated? I mean, like, uh, is this something where every user is going to be expected to validate everything or are you anticipating only low participation or is it incentivized in some way? It would not scale. I agree that. uh, But remember, there's two layers. So one layer is currency only and the other layer is it's the ownership of this this sort of corporation that's going to do the the judgment. And so the, the vision is actually to keep Splitting that is something I call branching, where it's sort of like a fork, but you're only forking the. Well, it was originally planned as a fork because it would it would have made more sense as a side chain, but maybe I need a different word for it now. But basically, I'm thinking you'd create a new the the vote coins on the uh, on the sort of altcoin design would be like colored coins. And they'd be like colored coins and you'd make a new set of colored coins and you'd give them to the same people as before. So you'd have the same accumulated reputation. But instead of just being general, one would maybe specialize in sports. And so then all the people who owned a general would now own two. And so instead of doing like 100 per month, they'd be doing, you know, if it maybe went up to 200 a month, they'd split and then there'd be 100 on each. And if you're okay with doing 200 a month, you know, this is going to be like your full-time job or something then you can just keep both, but otherwise you'd sell or buy or do whatever you want to these scarce coins, these vote coins for sports only. And then eventually, you know, too many sports contracts, you'd split it into, you know, sports baseball and then sports not baseball. And then you'd, you'd split not baseball, you'd split that one into uh, – basketball and right there's a case there's a cascading value thing it seems like where a platform reaches a certain size and then it gets big enough that actually you can use the token of that platform for fundraising the next generation of tokens and it seems like over time as as these networks get bigger that is what might happen is that it might just continue to kind of split like that where it's not really different it's just more specific because that means you can have you know a more niche performance that's exactly what I'm envisioning. So actually, that's even it's another desirable feature of that is that eventually, although currently the scope is only for things that you would very easily verify, because if you're going to play a coordination game, it's it doesn't help if you ask like what's the world's favorite color or something stupid like that where no one can coordinate on anything. Uh, although I have a plan for that, I, I glossed over kind of a lot of details. So if you're still skeptical of this, I encourage you to read you know the white paper and all this stuff. So there's a lot of details that are kind of that are more clear, but we just there's no way you know it's not enough time to sort of get to them all. But one thing is that if you keep branching like this, eventually you can get really really specific group of of kind of people who can, who are, who know everything about, you know, who are very comfortable with putting in the mile per hour of every pitch thrown at a, a certain game or a certain college softball game or something, something really specific like that, you would eventually make it down there and you'd be able to do this for very specific politics, very specific finance, very specific everything. And so that's the cool thing. So yeah, unfortunately a lot of details I had to kind of blur over and because just because it's kind of a little complicated. But yeah. Well, Paul, I, I definitely think we're going to have, to have you back on to, to continue this conversation. <laughs> um, so I'm happy to be back on. Yeah. So it sounded like you're, you're in the fairly early stages of this. You've got a couple of papers written about this and you've got some proof of concept implementations. What type of help are you looking for at this point and where can somebody get in touch with you? Okay, well, we have a, you know we have a forum now, forum.truthcoin.info, and uh, if you can show up on the forum, that's great. Uh, a lot of people are currently waging a little debate on both by email and on the forum uh, on exactly how to implement this 
you know, on a, its own chain or in the, the BitShares toolkit or as an Ethereum contract, and there's a lot of different people. So, I mean, my preference would be to have it on everything at, at once to just kind of see, because I just care about the idea more than anything else. But, but yeah, the, the help that's really required is someone who knows a lot about the Bitcoin blockchain, someone who is comfortable writing code that are, you know, copying the code from Bitcoin or from, you know, another, you know, blockchain technology. That's really what's required. Someone with, because I actually, I'm just an economist, really. I just designed this, this incentive scheme and I don't have, I knew enough about cryptography to kind of get by, but I did have to even make some last minute changes after I published the first version and I was talking to, uh, G Maxwell and other people. And so, so even that, you know, like a security audit uh, by someone who's really good at cryptography, that would be really good, but that should probably wait until, you know, the code is, is at a more, you know, a bigger, a bigger, just, just more lines of code need to right, be there. Until there's code there to audit. I just have the, right. I just have proof of concept of the new parts. So if you're really comfortable adding the old, old parts, that's great. You know, the Bitcoin parts and, or things about new transaction types. So within the Bitcoin ecosystem, when you're launching one of these new projects, crowd sales have become pretty popular. Do you guys have any fundraising plans at this point? Are you still just focused on getting you know, the, the, the product uh, before you worry about fundraising for it? Or do you have any thoughts about that yet? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. It's, uh, it's something I've avoided thinking about for a really long time. I really don't. There are a lot of, you know, comp- there are a lot of parts to it, right? So uh, one thing is that I just... It's like a big hassle, you know, legally, and you know, it's like you could get into a lot of trouble, as Eric Voorhees found out, and you can get into a lot of trouble, and it's a big headache because you know I live in the United States and I, I live in Connecticut, so uh, it's like a big deal if you want to get involved with this kind of stuff at all, and so I kind of prefer to avoid it completely. The other thing is that I'm not entirely sure how much money is actually required because a lot of people have already come in and they said, you know, I'll. I'd be happy to help work on this. And I'm hoping that by coming on this, this show, even more people will, will also come and they'll also help. And I, I think it's actually, the thing is, it's so similar to Bitcoin with just a, a couple other transaction types and this weird incentive thing that I built. But it's really simple. I think it's much simpler than, I mean, when I designed it, I thought this is really complicated. But when I started reading about what other people are doing with Ethereum and BitShares and, and Counterparty and all these other things, I just thought, oh, this is you know much sort of very tame so I think it might not require a huge amount of money. I would like to have money to subsidize the first couple prediction markets that, that kind of come out so that people have a lot to kind of trade against and trade with. So it's very, very, very liquid. So it's a very nice experience for the, the first users. But other than that, you know, I mean, I'm not, I don't know how comfortable I am at all with raising money and holding on to the money and what I would do with it. Uh, ideally, one really rich person would just kind of hire me into some thing and they'd take care of all this stuff and they'd hire, they'd let me hire developers and then they would just go over from there. But the crowdfunding thing is really intimidating to me personally. I just, I don't, it's for me, it's difficult. Okay. So what's the next thing on your plate for this project? What's the thing that's occupying your attention for the rest of the day? So I wrote all this in R, which is this this weird, it's very statistical kind of academic language. 
And so I was rewriting it in Python to get it out before I released the first version of the software. And I never really finished doing that. So I was going to do more of this work in Python, sort of a more general language that more people like. And But more than that, I was going to try and uh, and really just describe you know, in documentation exactly what all the, the functions are supposed to do so that someone who's much better at coding can just read that and then just do it the right way. <laughs> just write down all the rules, not in a white paper format, but in just a literal this function, this function, this function kind of thing. So that's, that's sort of what I'm working on because I just want to get other people involved who are, who are much better at this than I am because I'm really not qualified to finish the project by myself at all. Paul Sorts, thank you very much for uh, telling us about <laughs> Truthcoin today and thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Hey there, LTB listeners. In the last six months, we've morphed from the Let's Talk Bitcoin show into a full network of cryptocurrency-related content. You might have noticed your podcast feed getting a little crowded, and by now you probably have a good idea of which shows you most enjoy. To subscribe to individual shows, head over to letstalkbitcoin.com slash shows, where you can build your own custom blend, subscribe to individual shows, and also grab our full written article feed, which is your ticket to a wide variety of Bitcoin stories and opinions. Oh, and one more thing. If you're into Apple devices, check the App Store for Let's Talk Bitcoin to download our free show player and virtual magazine, optimized for iPhone 5. Android versions will include wallet functionality, and currently we're in the planning phases on that. If you like what we're doing, please rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Lamar Wilson and Leif Taylor of uh, the Cooperative of Good Collective and creators of Fiva Wallet. Guys, how you doing? Doing well. Doing well, Adam. Well, thanks for rejoining us today on Let's Talk Bitcoin. It's been a couple of months since we talked. You guys had kind of an innovative product and interesting way of getting it into the into the Apple uh, App Store. Can you kind of just recap for listeners who didn't hear the earlier thing what your project is? What we have is a cooperative called the Cog Co-op, which allows us to distribute our wallet, the FIVA wallet, to its members. And it's not like like we always say, it's not getting around the App Store. It's actually uh, fitting within the Apple rules. We can distribute whatever applications we need to to the members of our cooperative of the cooperative and it's going really well we're getting some really good reviews people are liking the wallet a lot of course there are some bugs it is software but um we are working with every single person that emails us to try to make sure we get those bugs knocked out and we're just having a really good time doing it so the reason to use uh cog as a vehicle here is because you can't sell your app in the App Store, right? Because it's it's a wallet, and they're not letting wallets be be sold or distributed through the App Store. Yeah, that is correct. Um, we actually had the idea for the cooperative before the Apple ban, and it just so happened that the Apple ban kind of allowed us to be the only ones that could distribute a fully functional wallet right now. So do you see this as an advantage or a disadvantage? Because it kind of seems like, the amount of people who would find you through the App Store looking for a wallet compared to the amount of people who are going to find you on the Internet looking for a wallet, it would be a real advantage to be in the App Store, right? Yeah, it would be an advantage definitely to be in the App Store, but we don't necessarily see it as a disadvantage going back to the, the premise of why we started the cooperative in the first place. So actually it's just a better way to funnel people directly through the cooperative for us. We would love to be in the App Store. I mean, it's, it's a lot easier distribution. People understand it a lot better. But uh, we never let obstacles kind of stop us. We try to figure out, okay, how can we overcome the obstacle and uh, be able to provide the best product or service to the people who need to get it? So Apple 
lifts its ban, then we'll do it this way. If Apple lifts its ban, I think we still have a wallet that is very competitive and can stand up with the best of them. We tend to try to do things to make it a lot easier for users to uh, to adopt Bitcoin anyway. So hopefully we would win in that situation as well. How has that been? You released a couple of months ago now. How long ago was it? Three, four months ago? Uh, it was actually at the Texas Bitcoin Conference. It was, what, March 6th, I believe? Yeah, a couple months ago. Yeah, I mean, it's been really well. Like I said, we've we've actually launched the Android wallet. So we have an iOS wallet, a Chrome extension, and the Android wallet. All of them, of course, they're out there in the world. Uh, people have been giving us great reviews. Of course, like I said, there are some bugs in certain situations. We can't, you know, handle every use case, but we are constantly working on fixing those bugs and also adding new features. So the, the wallet space has been one of... Um you know, there hasn't been a lot of innovation, and it kind of seems like you guys are trying to do some new things. What are the use cases that you think like FIVA shines in, and what are the ones where it's like, well, just don't bother with us. There are better options out there. The FIVA wallet shines in swift transactions. FIVA is the transaction wallet. It should be your hot wallet, not one that you store a lot of Bitcoin in. Um, we've noticed that some people are storing a lot of their Bitcoin in there, but that's that's all in your preference. We say that it should be a transactional wallet, the one that you are spending Bitcoin with. Uh, sharing Bitcoin with other users. And that's why we have things like the coin ID to make it really easy to share with the people around you. So you don't have to have that huge Bitcoin address. And also, we try to make it to where you can buy goods a lot easier. We have this philosophy of FIBA Plus, where we want to bring in other brands that help the adoption. So our first brand that we brought in was Gift which is a global distributor of gift cards, our digital distributor of gift cards, excuse me. And the, what we thought about when we thought about doing a gift partnership was we wanted to make sure that people could use their Bitcoin in as many retail locations as possible, even if those retail locations had not adopted Bitcoin just yet. What does the gift integration actually look like? Is this part of, an, is this part of the FIVA app on your phone? How does someone interact with gift through that? There's a plus section in the application. We just added it. And Gift is just the first of many apps that are coming. But there's a plus section. Um, all you do is hit the plus button. It takes you to Gift. If you have a Gift account, you sync that. If you don't have a Gift account, you can create one directly within the application. From there, it's really easy. Then you just go through and browse all the different stores. There are about 200 different retailers. Um, and we're going to be adding some more soon. Then once you go through those stores, you find one you want. Like Whole Foods, I think Whole Foods has been a, a big one because people want to buy groceries. So you click on Whole Foods and you go directly to how much you want to pay for it. If you want to get $25, $100 worth, then you hit buy now. And then because you're in the wallet, it handles the transaction immediately for you. And then if you go back to your gift application, there's the gift card. It's a, 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 a lot faster way to, to use Bitcoin directly in uh, Whole Foods. So you're in Whole Foods, you want to buy some groceries. Of course, you, they don't take Bitcoin, but you can quickly exchange your Bitcoin for a gift card, cash out and walk out the door. Sounds very cool. So basically the partnerships that you're having are going to be for spending things, right? Places that people would want to spend Bitcoin, you're essentially doing kind of a deeper integration so that you don't have to deal with addresses. No, not necessarily. When we first thought about uh, the FIVA Hot Wallet, the whole idea was to become the hot wallet for many of the large brands. So Coinbase, um, even Circle, uh, um, exchanges like Bitstamp. Because if you think about like E-Trade, E-Trade has a Visa card that you can take some money out of your account and be able to use it quickly through a debit card situation. Or let's see, there, there are many different ones 
in the world like that have Visa cards that are attached to larger accounts to allow you to transact in them. So the way we're thinking about it is, okay, we allow you to connect your Coinbase account. We allow you to connect your Circle account and easily put some money over to your views online or in person, um, like as we did when we uh, went to Taste the Tie here in Lexington. Uh, we used our Fever Wallet there. So like I said, it's, it's more of your checking debit account, the Fever Wallet should be. And so we'll probably try to pull in some other um, like Coinbase or a circle if they have an API to bring into the wallet to make it a lot easier to even bring money from your huge uh, cold storage or, or long storage account into a transactional wallet. It seems like we're moving towards debit cards that link into Bitcoin in kind of a more direct fashion. Those don't have the disadvantage of having to have confirmations. I mean, they, they can be reversible, but that can be a good or a bad thing in a hot wallet depending on on your perspective. So do you think that, that, um, that this type of hot wallet solution is superior to cards or are you saying it's just another option? Um, right now it's another option. Yes, we would love to go to the card, um, situation, but that's what we're, we're noticing. Cause we, we take every email that people give us, um, Leif and I answer every single email. So if people, once again, I can put my email out there publicly. I'm Lamar at Fever.com and Leif is Leif at Fever.com. Or you can reach us both at hello at Fever.com. Um, because it is a cooperative and we make that wallet for the cooperative, we take um, the, as many suggestions as we possibly can get. And a lot of people would love to be able to easily transfer some of their money from their Coinbase account into Fever to use. Because the Coinbase wallet, of course, on iOS has been banned by Apple, but with us, they can at least take some coin, take some money out of Coinbase and use it in their everyday wallet and not have to worry about, especially for new Coinbase users, and not have to worry about dealing with the whole Apple band and everything. Well, sounds very cool. So what's next for you guys after after this? New features coming to FIVA Plus or a different program rolling out? I know you had, had kind of a variety of, of initiatives on the burners. Yeah, so Fever Plus is um, something we're working on heavily. It's amazing the amount of suggestions we get and the amount of different implementations that people would love to see. I mean, even from the ATM standpoint, uh, I think you'll see a lot in the Fever Plus coming forward. Uh, we've been approached by some some very large brands to do some things that I think are very creative. And, and that's really what we want to keep bringing to the table is uh, we want to keep pushing that the edge a little bit further to make adoption really, really, really simple and to get people to understand that um, just because you have Bitcoin doesn't mean you can't like live, that you that you can't uh, live day to day. We want to show people that you can use Bitcoin in your everyday life. And yes, we would love those uh, retailers to adopt Bitcoin directly. But I mean, if we can still spend Bitcoin at some of the largest brands, I think that still serves a good purpose for um, for us. But yeah, you'll see some things in the FIBA Plus uh, category. And then we're also doing, um, we're working right now on our ads. I know we talked about ads at the very beginning. Um, the gift partnership came a lot faster than what we thought. So we kind of put the ads on the background, but we will be building an ad network for our wallet so that other companies can advertise directly within the wallet themselves to our cooperative. And then, well, like we were saying before, the rep be split between uh, the company and also back to the cooperative. And then anyone who's in the cooperative, they will get what's called a patronage refund for uh, their patronage points. So that's another way for us to allow people to get Bitcoin quickly and easily. Hmm, interesting. This is a wallet where users control their own keys or have the capability to control their keys. It's not something where you guys are onboarding that risk, right? The keys are created on their client. And we, we're going to provide an Exodus address possibly 
or um, some other way for them to get their keys. Right now, uh, we don't know what the keys are. We have no idea. They encrypt them on their device. It's almost like the old blockchain.info wallet or the current blockchain.info wallet where you encrypt the keys on your device um, and we just store the encrypted version on the server. But we want to, and we are building um, ways those keys. It's just a security risk at, at times um, with the double spin, which, I mean, we don't really have a huge problem with that, but because we're such a fast transactional wallet, we want to kind of gauge that risk as well to make sure that people get the keys because not everybody in the cooperative is is a, a, a good user. Right. Um, we love to think that, but, you know, everybody's not like that, so we don't want a bunch of trouble out there by people having their wallet and using ours quickly in certain several places. So we're trying to gauge that a little bit. At the end of the day, I mean, if you want your keys, we'll definitely get you your keys. So I mean, this, is, no this is basically why you emphasize that it's a hot wallet then, is because exactly. this, is, this is basically the primary attack vector that could be brought against it, and really the defense is just not having anything more than you're planning on spending on there. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll give anybody uh, an Exodus address right now. We're just not opening it up because, I mean, number one, the people who are getting our wallet that we're hoping are getting our wallet are those new people who don't even understand it to the point to where they understand what a private and public key is. And we want to like abstract that away and make it really easy for them to have a wallet without thinking about how can I take the key here and move it there and all that kind of stuff. If they want to get out, like I said, if anybody wants to get out, all you have to do is email me. I'll send you a, a, an address. You can go in and get your keys. And what we'll probably do is just at that moment, we'll delete the account. Once you get access to your keys, we'll probably delete the account just to make sure that there aren't any situations going on as far as people trying to do some fraudulent things with it. Lamar and Leif, thank you very much for your time uh, today. You know, if people want to get in touch with you or if people are interested in learning more about the project, what are the, what are the addresses and domains? Go to FIVA.com, P-H-E-E-V-A.com. You can reach Lamar at FIVA.com. You can reach Leif at Leif, L-A-F-E, at FIVA.com. Or you can reach the both of us at hello at FIVA.com. We answer every email that's been sent. You can also go to COG Co-op, C-O-G-C-O-O-P.com as well, and sign up for the cooperative there. Guys, thank you very much for your time. We look forward to your continued progress. Thanks for listening to episode 117 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for this episode was provided by Paul Stortz, Lamar Wilson, Leif Taylor, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Adam Levine and Denise Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens, General Fuzz, and Gertie Beats. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.